This is the Athletic Football Show. Welcome to the Athletic Football Show. I'm Robert Mays. Joining me today, the Athletic Zone, Lindsay Jones. Lindsay, how are you? I'm good, Robert. This is going to be a fun week. It's a not-COVID so, podcast. Let's go. It, we are not going to be doing a COVID podcast. Last week was the COVID podcast. We're going to get into a stacked slate of games for week 14. I opened the schedule today and started my notes, and it literally says at the top of my notes, how is it possibly week 14? In some ways, it seems really plausible that we've gotten this far. In others, it feels like week one was yesterday. That's where I'm falling today. I cannot believe that it's week 14. We only have four games left on the slate. Yeah, I mean, we've made it this far. And it is interesting thinking it's week 14 because one of the biggest games of this week is Browns-Ravens, which the last time they played was week one, which feels like it it might as well have been in 2016. It was that long ago. But um, yeah, it's a really fun week of games. The primetime games are both awesome this week after we've had, you know, some stinkers here and there. You know, we've had to watch the Cowboys in primetime at the middle of this week. But um, yeah, it's a really fun slate of games, especially for the AFC. So we're going to talk to Ted a little bit later today about the Bills offense. We did not get to that on yesterday's show. I wanted to chat about it. I'm very excited to do that. Before we get to any of that, though, we're going to get to three games of the week this week. Typically, we try to break it up into a few different segments, but we just thought that the best way to handle this would be to dig into the AFC games because we have three specific matchups that are going to dictate a lot of what happens with the AFC playoff picture. So let's start with the game of the week, Sunday Night Football, a fantastic matchup between two teams that I think are jockeying to be, in people's minds, the second best team in the AFC, and that is the Steelers and the Bills. So obviously these two teams played visible games this week back-to-back on Monday. You have the Steelers losing to Washington. You have the Bills beating the Niners in convincing fashion, probably the biggest game of their biggest best win of their season. So as you're sitting how looking at how these two teams stack up right now, which do you feel better about in terms of giving the Chiefs a run in the AFC? Yeah, I mean I I don't feel great about the Steelers all of a sudden. I mean they've they squeaked past the Ravens in that super weird week after that yep. Thanksgiving game was postponed. They didn't look good off good offensively in that game, and they lost Bud Dupree. And then offensively, they just were really out of sorts and just didn't execute well at all against Washington. Um, Mike Tomlin, very critical of his offense in the days since, especially of how many drops they had. But there just seems to be something off about the Steelers. And, you know, maybe it's starting to catch up with them a little bit that they did play the easiest schedule in the NFL up to this point. And, you know, until now, you can only play who you play, right? But they didn't have a ton of really convincing wins on their schedule. They, you know, I, I kept thinking back to how they played against Dallas. That was a really, really ugly game. And you started to see a little bit of these flaws here and there. But so I don't I don't feel great about the Steelers and the direction that they're going right now. I do feel pretty good about the Bills. And, you know, I think we've been a pretty high on the Bills on this podcast all along, even when they kind of went through a lull at midseason. But when they play their best offensively, they're one of the most fun, dynamic, uncoverable teams in the NFL. And if you want to compete against the Chiefs, right, you need to have a quarterback who's willing to kind of go toe to toe, you're going to have to score a lot of points, you're going to have to maximize the possessions that you have. And the Bills are running the ball well, they have so many different offensive weapons that can score. I mean, 
we love Stefan Diggs, right? But Cole Beasley is playing great. I mean, they just have so many different ways that they can beat you all of a sudden. So um, I'm very high on the Bills and not so much on the Steelers. It's funny because you talk about the drops from the Steelers and how their offense hasn't looked very good. And I went back and I watched both of their games from Monday earlier today. And it's really striking the contrast in what those two offenses look like. When the Steelers drop a pass, it feels like the drive is over. Because everything feels labored for them. Ben Roethlisberger is averaging 4.6 air yards per completion. The only quarterbacks in the NFL averaging less than that are the Washington quarterbacks, which that's all you need to know. This is a dink and dunk offense that really has to thread a needle and be consistent play in and play out to move the ball. The Bills aren't like that. The Bills played very well offensively against the Niners. I think there was a smoothness to the way they played, but even when there wasn't, Josh Allen is making plays out of structure. He had four or five throws in that game that are knock-you-on-your-ass type throws. Mahomes-esque, Rodgers-esque, I-can't-believe-what-I-just-saw type throws. And they're capable of that. And when you combine that with a well-coordinated, well-designed offense that can hit you within structure in a lot of different ways, you see what the Bills can be. And that's what we saw on Monday night. So that's the concern about the Steelers is if they're not firing on all cylinders and they're not hitting every single one of these plays, they get behind the sticks and they can't move the ball. So I'm just not sure they can sustain that for the rest of the season. And that's why I always had questions about them going to the playoffs anyway, even if their defense. And I think that's the argument, right? They can play that way on offense if their defense is great. It's complimentary. It's ball control. It's we only need to do enough. But now you see some cracks in their defense. Joe Hayden had a concussion last week. Steven Nelson missed that game. Both of them might not play this week against that Bills wide receiving core. Is that going to be an issue? So I think you're starting to see the cracks in the foundation for a Steelers team that just didn't have a ton of margin for error based on the style of football they were playing. And we're now seeing what's happening, that they're trying to reconfigure their defense without Bud Dupree. That's obviously giving them or, or taking a big piece of their pass rush away and is allowing it's going to allow future offenses to focus even more on stopping TJ Watt. And they didn't bring a ton of pressure against Washington. I was surprised right? by that. Do you think that was schematic or they just didn't know how to do it or they just weren't able to do it? I'm thinking it's because Washington gets gets rid of the ball so quickly. Yeah. You know, we said that they were the only team that their short their average completion is shorter than the Steelers is. I think yeah, that's, I mean, that's probably classic it. Alex Smith. It's I mean it's I think but I think that for the most part they're just trying to get the ball out quickly. Whoever's playing quarterback, you know, Dwayne Haskins was right there as well. So my assumption is the Steelers probably just didn't think that was worth it. Why would we be bringing pressure when he's going to be getting rid of the ball in two seconds and we're not going to get home anyway? Do they change that against a quarterback who's holding the ball as long as any other quarterback in yeah. the NFL this week <laughs> against Josh Allen? Allen has been solid against the Blitz this year. He's averaging 7.2 yards per attempt, 66% completions. Worse than he is without it, but not an area where you can necessarily take advantage of him. It's not clear that that's a weakness for this Bills team. So I would assume the Steelers go back to that a little bit more. My concern is that Bud Dupree being gone is the most important thing in the world to me. I think you can plug in one more rusher there, and even if you're not going to win as many of those one-on-ones, you can still manufacture that pass rush. I'm more worried about what the injuries are going to do on the back end. Robert Spillane now is hurt. He's doubtful to play in this game. Now we're going to get more Vince Williams on passing downs with Devin Bush already out. 
We saw Vince Williams get beat for a touchdown in that Washington game. So you see this cumulative domino effect with these guys in the back seven. And if they can't cover and you have a slight diminished pass rush because Dupree's not there, then then do these issues start piling on top of one another? Yeah, I mean, you can't look at any of the injury issues that that the Steelers have been dealing with in a vacuum. And that's why this is troubling when it's guy after guy after guy. And they are going to get a little bit healthier on offense. Looks like James Conner will be cleared to return. He was placed on the COVID list before that Ravens game. So they might get a little bit of help there. But uh, I just, I'm not sure. I just don't like the way that that, that Steelers team is heading. And they have no room They're not for even running anymore. the ball anyway. They're, they're essentially, they've abandoned the run because it's not working. I mean, it seems like in their minds, they're thinking, why pound the rock for two yards a carry when we can just use our passing can, game as ball we control? We can throw the ball for two yards a carry. Or two I mean, that's pretty much what it is. I mean, there was a moment I, I, last week or on Monday during that game where I think Juju Smith-Schuster had seven catches for 28 yards. <laughs> it's just a bizarre offense to watch. And you know, the first play of the game, they tried to take a deep shot down the right sideline with Ben Roethlisberger, and he's thrown it six yards out of bounds. So the problem is, even when they're going down the field, it's not really working. So I don't know what the answers are for this team. And even though they're sitting there at 11-1, and one, I don't have a lot of confidence in what they're going to look like here over the next yeah. month. I mean, are there any areas you think in that Bills defense that Pittsburgh might be able to exploit? Are there any matchups particularly that might work out for Pittsburgh? I mean, the Bills defense has gotten better o- over the last month or so. They were really struggling earlier in the season. I don't know specifically what they would want to do. If there's something they think in the middle of the field, or a couple of the, those linebackers tend to struggle in coverage, especially when Matt Milano isn't playing. So maybe that's a- an area where they think they have an advantage. But it doesn't seem like there are many spots where this deal with defense is going to have an advantage over anybody, really. It's a lot of underneath stuff and just hoping that defenses can't tackle. And if the Bills can, then I don't think they should be worried about giving anything up over the top. Washington was sitting on everything the same way that I think every defense is going to and still, until the Steelers prove to them, we're going to burn you if you play that way. So I guess right now, I mean, the big the big question for Pittsburgh other than all of these ones we talked about is, can they hold on to that number one seed? And even though they lost last week against Washington because of conference tiebreakers and records and all of this sort of stuff, they technically still have that edge over Kansas City. Do you think they're going to be able to hold on to that? Or is this just this inevitable march to the Chiefs taking over that number one seed in the AFC? I mean, you definitely feel more worried about the Steelers losing another game than you do about the Chiefs losing another game, right? Yeah, The Steelers, their next four games, they have the Bills on Sunday night. They absolutely could lose that game. So it looks like the Steelers are minus one and a half point favorites. I mean, that's essentially a a toss-up, even though it's in Buffalo. I I think that's probably a little bit low. I'd feel good about taking the Bills' money line in that game if I was somebody who bet money on stuff. So, I mean, this is a game they absolutely could lose. And if they do, I don't feel comfortable about the Chiefs losing another game for the rest of the season. I absolutely think they could win out with the way that they're playing right now. And the Steelers also have to play um, the Colts and the Browns. Yep. Later this season. Yep. I mean, the Colts and the, and the have Bengals. looked fine. The Colts have looked fine and the Browns have looked much better. So I'll be very curious to see what they look like over the next month. I could see them dropping one more. And if they do, then the Chiefs have the bye, which is more important than it's ever been because only one team gets the bye. All right, let's move on. Let's get to the rest of the AFC North here and those Cleveland Browns. You mentioned it. It feels like that game in week one happened 20 years ago, and especially for the Browns, because this is a team that's looked so much different 
over the last month, and especially on Sunday against the Titans, than they did in week one against the Ravens. This is a pretty symbolic test for them because if they can come out and they can beat this Ravens team, they're they're showing people that those two games they dropped against Baltimore and Pittsburgh were an outlier. This is a different team now than the one that lost those games in pretty convincing fashion to their division rivals earlier this season. Do you buy that? Do you think this Browns team now is different than the one we saw play the Ravens in week one? I absolutely think they are. I mean, we have to remember that coming into the going into week one, they had had basically no practice. You know, they had no offseason, um, yet another new offensive system, a new coaching staff, um, so many new players along their offensive line. They were just really starting to figure out who they were. And they were playing one of the more established, well-coached, well-run organizations uh, in the Ravens, who the Ravens also feel like a different team now than they did in week one. But they just kind of blew the doors off of them. They're, you know, they, the Ravens jumped out to an early lead and the Browns just didn't really have any way to pull this together. But then they looked actually pretty decent through the rest of September. And then they got blown out again by by Pittsburgh. I think they, they actually gave up the scores of those games were 38 to six and 38 to seven. And That's funny. what was frustrating at the time was that you saw this incremental progress and like they they looked really good when they beat the Colts, but they just were not competitive within their own division. And if you can't be competitive within your own division, then what does it really matter that you're making this kind of incremental progress? Well, now is the chance for the Browns to show not only are we good and we can compete with the better teams in the AFC like they showed last week against Tennessee, but we're a threat in our own division and we can go beat these teams that have really been our boogeymen for the last few years and really made it impossible to make actual progress. So this is a chance for a really big statement. It's going to be on that. It's a the Monday night football game, we're all going to get to see it. This is a really big opportunity for Baker Mayfield, who doesn't have a substantial body of work of playing big in big games. You know, I think when you still think of Baker, a lot of it is about kind of unfulfilled potential and unrealized hype. And this is as big as it gets, right? Monday night football with Lamar Jackson on the other on the other side. So this is a huge, you know, it matters a lot in the AFC playoff race. But I think like narratively and statement wise, it almost matters even more. I, I totally agree. And I think for the Browns, it is that kind of test. And again, I went back and I watched that game from week one today, just all Baker's dropbacks. And I was expecting to see a horror show, you know, just an absolute disaster from him. And it didn't feel like that. You know, obviously there was the pick early in the game when Calais Campbell dropped back into coverage and he threw it right through his hands and Marlon Humphrey ended up picking it off. That was a bad play. There were a couple moments where there's just those Baker Mayfield moments where he's rolling to his right for no reason and tossing the ball in desperation heaves down the right sideline. But there were a lot of things in that game where it's a tiny break here, a tiny break there. You know, they had a first and 30 in the first half. Odell Beckham dropped a third and one pass that should have been completed. There were a couple really nice plays that Marlon Humphrey and Marcus Peters made that on plays d- designs that should be open. I also am curious as to whether the lack of play action bootleg stuff in week one from Stefanski was Ravens game plan specific or if they just hadn't leaned into that version of their offense yet. I think Baker used play action on about 20-ish percent of his dropbacks in week one, but it was a lot of straight play action dropbacks. He wasn't moving in the way that we typically see from him. That may have been because they anticipated so much pressure, and the Ravens did blitz on more than half of his dropbacks, but we've seen that so much from the Browns' offense since. 
I'm curious how much of it we'll see on Sunday and if Stefanski has learned ways to get Baker comfortable and get him situated within this offense that he didn't necessarily know 12 weeks ago before he really understood what his quarterback looked like in live game action. Yeah, I just think the identity of the Browns is just so much more clear now. Mm-hmm. And look, we we knew they were going to have a good running game, right? We knew who Nick Chubb was. We knew who uh, Kareem Hunt was. But to see them together, to see kind of who Baker was going to be with Stefanski, as Stefanski is kind of really getting into this groove of, of, of who he is as a Browns play caller. You know, I just think it's been really fun to watch this evolution. And I, you know, I'm, I'm still not ready to put them in that like le- they're a legit contender case situation right now. I definitely want to see how they play in this game and then obviously in week 17 against the Steelers as well. But they just feel well built and the way that they've been winning games, you know, they've won in really crappy weather, they've won some close games, they've won some really high scoring games. Hopefully they've learned some lessons about putting your foot on the throat of an opponent and not letting them climb back in even though that is what Tennessee does and they're the rare team that's able to come back with their running game. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just I just think they're a young team that's really maturing and uh, learning how to win in these situations. And I just want them to enjoy it. And I want their fans to enjoy it. And that Monday night game could be really, really fun in Cleveland for I don't know how many fans are allowed to be there now if it's you know 10,000 or something. But I think it'll be a really fun, a really fun night in Cleveland. I think that it's all about your expectations and what you plan on trying to get from this season if you're a Browns fan right let's say they lose this game and let's say they make the playoffs and get ousted in the wild card round or whatever I think you have to come away from all of this looking at what Kevin Stefanski is building there even going back and watching that week one game there's so many plays where it's like oh he's giving Baker information with this motion or that's a really cool play design and it was one of those games that reminds you of what great players can do for a defense there were three or four plays that are just perfectly schemed up like they're in cover three and they're high-lowing Marlon Humphrey on the sideline with a great concept but he just reads it perfectly and somehow takes away both guys or they have another zone beater where Marcus Peters is supposed to be in quarters but he plays it in a way that's really instinctive and just intuitive. They had another play where they had Jarvis Landry in, in man coverage that would work all the time but Marlon Humphrey just takes it away and that's what we've seen consistently from the Browns is that they have so so often Stefanski is scheming this stuff up to put his guys in the right spots and if you have a coach that can consistently do that that's how you sustain success even if you don't get to the mountaintop this year you're on your way and I think that that's what Browns fans has to have to understand if you lose this game if if there are these kind of stumbling blocks that's okay but if they can beat the Ravens if they can kind of eradicate one of those boogeymen that is even hung around as they've had this wonderful kind of magical season it's going to be a huge step for that franchise mentally for their fan base and i would assume for the players it just feels insane to be talking about a well-coached and well-schemed browns team in december (laughs) have you ever i mean i've been covering the nfl since 2008 i'm not sure if i've ever had those sort of conversations i'm guessing you haven't either this late in a season it's really funny I was watch. I was looking at some of the numbers today. Baker's eleventh in EPA per dropback, which is Kevin Stefanski's a fucking scheme lord. Like that, <laughs> that's it's amazing. And right below him is Kirk Cousins. And I just am, I've thought I was thinking about a conversation I had with Kevin Stefanski last year when I was talking to him about Kirk Cousins and about how he kind of came to this offense, and just talking about how this is the offense that, in his opinion, gets the most out of its players. 
and especially the quarterback and seeing or Baker Mayfield and Kirk Cousins right there neck and neck in some of these numbers and the fact that Kubiak is still running that offense in Minnesota it's just so indicative that that's true and I think having that scheme in place here and having a really smart version of it that has different stuff going on up front and the talent that they have it's been really cool to watch the conversions and I think an important thing to take into consideration for this game is as the Browns offense has ascended the Ravens offense is taking a dip and they're not playing a Cowboys defense that doesn't want to be there yeah. on Sunday, on Monday. They're playing against a Browns defense that's getting healthier. Denzel Ward may be back for this game. They're still banged up. You know, their safety situation is a disaster. You think you're going to come into the year with Grant Delpit and Ronnie Harrison and now you have Andrew Sandejo and Carl Joseph as your starting safeties. Greedy Williams is still not playing. This is a team that's going to be healthier next year and be better. But I still think with what they have right now, Miles Garrett getting back, they absolutely could give this Ravens offense problems because it's an offense that's had a lot of problems recently. All of this said, the Ravens are actually favored in this game by a point, which, you know, so basically a push. But this game is in Cleveland. But think about, think about that in week one. Think about in week one. If I told you 13 weeks from now, this yeah. is going to be a one point, one point spread. You would be shocked. It's true. So how do you feel about the Ravens, though, overall? I mean, they they haven't played great offensively. They haven't played, they, you know, they've lost some games that we probably are surprised they lost. But how do you feel about them now, especially compared to maybe three or four weeks ago? I don't feel any better about them. I, I really don't. I think that they have really good players on defense, and that's going to shine through. Like I said before, those guys are going to show up every once in a while. But I still have serious, serious doubts about their offense when they're playing against anybody that's not a team they can run all over, you know. When Orlando Brown, when they scored that touchdown, he yelled into the camera, easy money against <laughs> like, the Cowboys. It's not. It, 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 well, it, against it, the Cowboys. It, against yes. the Cowboys, it's easy money. Against other teams, it's not going to yeah. be. You know, This is a Browns team that's fine against the run. And I think any team that can put up a solid fight against the Ravens right now, it looks hard for them. It, the passing game looks hard, especially without Mark Andrews and Willie Sneed. I mean, those are two guys that comprise this passing game. And it, I don't know if they, either of those guys are going to be back on Sunday or Monday, but I mean, it's even with those guys, it was a slog. And I just don't think they're going to be able to run the Browns over the same way they did with Dallas. Um, Mark Andrews was activated off of the COVID list Wednesday afternoon. So very likely he'll be cleared because it is still four or five days away. Sometimes guys, if they're cleared that day, haven't been quite ready to play, but he has been activated um, as well as Matthew Judon. So looks like both of those guys should be able to go and they're, you know, they're very much now coming out the backside of this outbreak. Um, it's just curious about what sort of team they're going to be once they finally are back at full strength. Speaking of COVID, Wyatt Teller was put on the COVID reserve list yesterday, so he probably will not be able to play in this game would be my assumption. What's the timeline on that? Would he be able to theoretically play if he well, tests negative? Well, it, it depends if he was placed on the list as a high-risk close contact or if he was placed on the list because of a positive test. If it was a positive test, he will not be able to play because that comes with 10 days. Um there's some stipulations if you're asymptomatic and return a lot of negative tests. But if you're a high-risk close contact, which means that he could have been exposed to somebody in his family or somebody else within the Browns organization, um, he would he probably would be cleared because especially with the timeline getting to Monday, um, it's it's a five-day isolation. I mean, that would be helpful. Um, so I mean, it just really depends helpful. on if he and, is. You know, against a front that's pretty good. You know, Clayus Campbell's playing even though he's dinged up. So having him in there is huge. He's a weapon for them in their running game. He's been great in pass protection. He's been one of the best offensive linemen in the NFL this season. So uh, that would be huge. But 
the Ravens lose this game, it could have huge implications for them in the AFC playoff picture. It, the nice thing for them is that the teams that they're going to be fighting for that sixth or seventh spot in the AFC playoffs could also lose this week. The Raiders could theoretically lose to the Colts, the Dolphins could lose to the Chiefs, and the Ravens could still be in the mix there. But let's say the Raiders, for example, win that game and they have five losses and now the Ravens drop to six. I mean, this could knock them back, and it would be shocking if the Ravens missed the playoffs, but it's within the realm of possibility now. And when you consider where they, what they were supposed to be coming into this season, that's one of the more surprising storylines, one of the more surprising developments of the entire year. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the AFC standings right now and the whole if the playoffs started today, which I kind of hate because they don't start today, right? But as it stands right now, they're in the ninth spot. They're actually behind, they're also behind um, the Raiders there in the AFC. So they have some work to do. They need to pick up some games in terms of that they're going to need for tiebreakers when it's division record, conference record, all of those sorts of things. But yeah, they're they're really in a bad spot. I mean, and then the Browns, Obviously, it would help to win this game, but I think even if they did lose this game, based on some of the other wins that they've already picked up this year, they would be in a pretty good spot. I mean, our, everybody's best friend, Steve Kornacki, <laughs> had them as a 97% chance to make the playoffs, which I know Browns fans probably don't want to take that yeah, it, too it's much. Yeah, it's 100%. You know, I'm sure they don't want to hear about it. <laughs> a little fatalistic there in, in Cleveland, probably, but this I think just that there's so much more at stake for the Ravens this week. Um when it comes to the actual standings for the Browns, there's a lot at stake just about who they are, right. And how the rest of us view them. But in terms of like a must win or your season could be over, that's what the Ravens are looking at. So let's stick within that AFC playoff picture, get to the Colts and the Raiders, another huge game for the wild card scenarios in this conference. Colts are eight and four Raiders are seven and five. And this would be a massive game just for the tiebreaker. I mean, if the yeah. Raiders, if the Colts win this game, there are essentially three games ahead of Las Vegas in the AFC wildcard race. And that's massive. And the same goes for the Raiders. If they win this game, they have the tiebreaker on the Colts. I'm going to ask you this because I've been thinking about it a lot recently, and I'm actually writing about it this week. What are the Raiders to you? Like, if you had to stack them up, like, as a franchise right now, what are the Las Vegas Raiders as it relates to the rest of the NFL? What would your answer be? Yeah. Oh, it's so tough, too, because, you know, I've, I live in Denver. I've covered the AFC West really heavily. So I feel like I've seen a lot of different incarnations of the Raiders. And I I think all of those years of covering the AFC West maybe give me a little bit skewed picture of who they are because for most of that time, they've been dysfunctional. They've been kind of a joke, but I don't think they're that team anymore. They're, right now, they seem to me as a team that you you never want to play them because when they're at their best, they could beat anybody but you just never know who you're going to get with them. And the variance from week to week is just all over the map. So I don't, I don't know. That's probably not answering your, your question right, other than I'm not sure if I know yet because they're not the same old Raiders. I think, I think it's the perfect answer I, 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 because I feel the same way. I just, they're exciting every once in a while, but the defense is still very bad. Like, they're 31st in run defense DVOA. They got run over by the Jets this week. This is a Colts team that would love to see their running game get on track. I think this might be the week to do it. So if the defense is going to be bad, then the offense has to be truly great. And that's not what it's been over the last couple of weeks. So they had that disaster game against Atlanta. 
I was willing to write that off because every once in a while that happens when you have a turnover fest. But then they play against the Jets and they were fine, but it looked like the offense from last year where they're manufacturing yards with Darren Waller and it's very horizontal, especially in the second half. They had no answers for pressure in the first half. And maybe if they get Trent Brown back this week, we see a little bit better play up front where they can have some stuff developed down the field. But I just don't know what they are. They're frustrating because they have these flashes. And two weeks ago, they can push the Chiefs to the very brink. And then now we're wondering if they're better than the Colts. And we just don't. I mean, it's one of those yeah. things. It's just so muddled. And I just don't know where I land on it. And I think that's really telling because now we're in year three of this Gruden experiment. And I think that they've made progress but I they don't know how much progress. progress. Yeah, they've made progress. Like there are good players on that team. They have flashes, but I just don't know where they are and I don't know where they're going. It's it's complicated for me. Well, and even I think back to our AFC West preview pod that we did the last week of August, where it was basically just like a shit on Derek Carr fest, right? I mean, we were that's like... harsh. <laughs> I called him 2017 Alex Smith. I don't think that's necessarily the meanest thing you could say about a quarterback. Oh, well, I just remember it not being very fair. We were both like, there's potential here, but Derek Carr is not going to be able to get him there. But I don't know. Maybe we'll have to go dig out that. But I, but so we were... We, I think that but I, this, uh, you're being unfair to me and to Derek Carr. <laughs> Okay. I mean, I, I did I, it too. It was both of us. He's probably blocked us both on Twitter. It's fine. Oh, he absolutely has blocked me. He 100% <laughs> has. I know that he has. So with the Derek Carr thing, it's more about the offense is well-constructed. It's a top 10 offense, but are they anything more than that? Are they ever going to be more than like the ninth offense in passing EPA and a team that has some flashes every once in a while because it's well-coordinated and they have decent players in a decent scheme? That's what I thought it might be coming into the season, and here we are. They're even worse than yeah. that now after what's happened over the last couple of weeks. I think Derek Carr is fine. It's not necessarily that he holds you back. I guess that it is he that he holds you back. Your ceiling is defined with Derek Carr, and I think we were maybe getting out of that two weeks ago when they, we saw what they did against the Chiefs. We had a whole thing with me and Nate where it's like, this is it. Derek Carr is here. It's the version we've wanted to see. And now two weeks later, I just think it might be the same old stuff, and we're just running in place. And I, I'm, I, I agree with all of that. I'm more frustrated that their defense continues to just still be really bad. I mean, the Jets ran all over them. The Jets shouldn't be running over anybody. And year after year after year, the Raiders' defense continues to be a really significant liability. And, you know, they've had some players, you know, like you can like Max Crosby in spurts. You can like Cleland Farrell in spurts. You can like Jonathan Abrams as like that asshole that's going to instigate stuff, but also probably going to get you a personal foul a game. But schematically, week after week, you cannot trust the Raiders defense. And that makes them really, really scary and a team, you know, as a team that you want to try to trust. In my mailbag that I just filed this afternoon, somebody though did ask me about, so which teams in the AFC could legitimately beat the Chiefs? And I was like, well, I have to, you have to put the Raiders in that conversation because for some reason, they match up really well. They play really well in those games. I don't think I would trust the Raiders to beat anybody else in a one-game playoff scenario. But we've seen what their perfect game looks like and what they can be when they're at their best. And I think that's why they're so infuriating when we see them play the way that they have over the last two weeks, the last play I, of that game notwithstanding. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and I think that this is a Colts team that, isn't very dynamic or explosive on offense, 
but Philip Rivers is still a very savvy quarterback. And if you're a di- undisciplined defense that is all over the place and just gives guys openings, he's going to find them. And I think that's exactly what's going to happen on Sunday. I 100% could see the Colts stacking up some points and the Raiders offense struggling just enough against a very good Colts defense that this is a 31-21 sort of game that never feels close. Although I do have in my head, it must be my the last time that Phillip Rivers played the Raiders. I think it was a Thursday night game last year where he was just like YOLOing balls up and Eric Harris had like three interceptions. Um, so we get a <laughs> fun right. like throwback AFC West Phillip Rivers versus the Raiders game. So so that'll be fun at least. I mean, it's a guy he knows he knows that Raiders defense really well, better than a out of division quarterback should. Um, but yeah, he he has gone bad Phillip against the Raiders fairly recently. <laughs> Funnily enough, this is two teams that actually run cover two at some of the highest rates in the NFL. It's a stat from earlier this month, but Matt Bowen tweeted out that cover two rates in the NFL, the Colts were number one at 30%. The Raiders are number two at 26%. So, you know, it's a, something that just to watch, you know, if Philip Rivers knows what they're running again, this is a guy that is very good at understanding what coverages teams are trying to play against him, how to defeat those coverages. And I just think that this is the type of defense that he can take advantage of. And I wouldn't be surprised if the Colts won this one in fairly convincing fashion. I also wouldn't be surprised if the Raiders offense just yeah. went nuts because that's the type of team this is. They're extremely hard to pin down. Anthony Costanzo, another one thing to watch here, left tackle, is questionable with his MCL injury. He could be back this week. They lost him and they lost backup left tackle Raven Clark to a torn Achilles. Chaz Green was playing for them. So that's something that matters more against teams with a dangerous pass rush than it does against the Raiders, but it's always nice to have your left tackle in the game, and Phillip Rivers is very aware when he is and when he's not. I'm just excited to come out of this week kind of having a much clearer picture about the, who the AFC is and what this hierarchy looks like. Oh, I'm, it's adorable that you think that you're going to have one. I, I really appreciate your <laughs> optimism there. All well, right. Stay tuned. I'm sure I'll be writing about it for Monday uh, at The Athletic. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big, juicy investment. Mmm, now that's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. So let's get to our favorite matchup of the week. We just have one this week after getting into those three games. The Dolphins' defense against the Chiefs' offense. This is what I'm very excited about. I had this one circled on my calendar from the moment that I realized they were playing late in the year and the Dolphins' defense was playing this well. Dolphins have been a top 10 defense all year, one of the best pass defenses in the league. But we come back to the age-old question. To blitz or not to blitz when it comes to Patrick Mahomes. Dolphins are the highest blitz rate in the NFL, run a ton of cover one. They love coming after the quarterback. Patrick Mahomes loves when you bring pressure because that is what he does extremely well. If you're going to send extra bodies, he's going to take advantage of it quickly and often. 
I don't know what to expect. I don't know what the Dolphins' game plan is going to be in this game. Are they going to play out of character and say, we're not going to do what we do best because we don't think it's the best way to attack Patrick Mahomes? Or are they going to go down swinging in the same way that we've seen from other teams? I, I looked at some of the old Patriots game plans. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking about. Against the Dolphins or against Pat Mahomes. They're, they mixed it up. There are some games they brought more pressure than others. There are some games where it's worked. I don't know if Flores is going to lean on that kind of stuff. I don't know if he's going to say, let's put Xavier Howard on Tyreek Hill. Let's double Tyreek Hill. These are questions we don't know the answers to because these two teams don't play all the time like the Patriots and the Chiefs do. So fascinating matchup here. Do you have any faith in this Dolphins defense being able to slow them down? Or do you just think that this is the beat marches on with the Chiefs offense and, and they're kind of an unstoppable force at this point? I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, I think... If there's somebody who's going to slow them down, I think it's Bill Belichick or the best Bill Belichick disciple that's coaching right now. Well, I guess by the way, he is that's, right. That's like ever the best. Well, how do we how do we classify Mike Vrabel? Do we count him as part of the Bill no, Belichick he tree? Count. Okay, so we'll, we'll take Vrabel out of the you know he played for him, but he didn't. He never actually coached for him. He's not on so, the coaching tree. I mean. He's very young into his head coaching career, but I think see, it already might be enough, though, considering that, how bad the other guys have been, which is absolutely fair. And he's clearly learned and taken the best stuff from Belichick. I think a lot of these guys who come off of Belichick's tree just try to be Bill like personality wise and the way that they manage their roster and what Brian Flores has done is he is himself. He is not trying to act like Bill Belichick, but he schemes like Bill Belichick. And we've seen him at his I love that these guys go all of the asshole, none of the success. It's a real, <laughs> real bold approach to coaching well, the NFL. It just shows you that the success part is really hard. And you just can't just recreate. You can't, you don't have Bill's mind. You can at, run around and act like you're a big tough guy, but um, to actually have the football intelligence in the schematic sense that, um, that Belichick does, especially for defensive football and knowing what to do to slow down these really good offenses. So so speaking of attitude and Brian Flores, did what happened last week against the Bengals and him clearly wanting to go toe-to-toe with whoever was out there, did that make you rethink his place in the coach's Royal Rumble bracket? Um, absolutely, it did. I think, I mean, it I, think I, I mean, I think we had him as like a pretty high seed anyways. I mean, I but we saw that fire. And now he wants to punch somebody. So, yeah, he's he's like number two with a bullet. I'm not. I think I might still take Mike Vrabel coming out of the AFC, but he's he's now right in the right in the mix. A couple other things to watch in this game: Mitchell Schwartz still not going to play. He's eligible to come off of IR with his back injury. Um, I, I have it on good authority that he will not be playing <laughs> on Sunday. Friend of the pod. So, um, so Emmanuel Abba has had a huge year this year. Mike Remmers has struggled a little bit on that side. Is this a game where that shows up? You know, Agba has been has an underrated season. He's been one of the better signings in free agency this season, in my opinion. He's going to be on that side for most of this game. Is that a mismatch that the Dolphins can take advantage of? One other thing, the Dolphins have only allowed 41 catches this year to tight ends all season. And this is something that we see occasionally from Belichick-style defenses, they play a lot of cover one. They really do a good job of taking away the middle of the field. So what is the plan going to be against Kelsey? Again, these are all things it's hard to know. I mean, that's one of the best things that Belichick defenses do against really good passing offenses is 
the way that they play, they're able to be really flexible. They can just say, we're running, you know, cover one, double whoever. So what are they going to do? Where are their extra resources going to go in this game? I think that's the biggest question. And again, we don't really have the answer to that because we haven't seen this type of Dolphins defense play against the Chiefs before. I would assume in the years to come, this is a matchup that we could be getting used to. Yeah, especially if the if the Dolphins are on the trajectory long term that we expect them to be, where they could that's what I was potentially at, be winning that division. So we're play it'll replace all of those Patriots matchups finally. So last thing before we get out of here, we're gonna skip our big question today because we're gonna be talking to Ted. In your mind, who has the most at stake in the NFL this week? This has been like the most AFC heavy podcast we've ever done. So I'm going to throw um, a quick NFC matchup here where the Vikings Bucks is like a sneaky, interesting, sneaky, important game. And we have not talked about the Vikings on this podcast in a very long time. I remember putting Mike Zimmer kind of on the uh, most at stake list back in September when they were just a complete disaster. And suddenly they are actually in the playoff picture right now. They right now sit in that never number seven spot, which would be the last wild card. And it's just bonkers considering where, considering where they were in September and early October that they're not just in the playoff conversation, but actually hold one of those spots right now. So there's a ton at stake in that game. The Bucks have not been playing well. They still are very out of sorts on offense. And all of a sudden, the Vikings... I don't know. I don't completely know what to make of them, but I don't want to face that running game, right? I mean, I I wouldn't want to try to scheme up against Dalvin Cook and figure out a way to stop him when he's really on a roll right now. And I don't know how sustainable 38 carries is. I mean, that's, I don't know how he came out of that game last week against Carolina (laughs) after carrying the ball 38 times, but they, they figured out who they are, what's working. Kirk Cousins isn't a disaster anymore this season. And I, it's just going to be a really interesting to watch those final wild card spots there in the NFC because it was almost this like foregone conclusion of like, oh, the Bucks are going to get in and maybe they'd rather be the five seed because then they get to play somebody from the NFC East. And all of a sudden it's like, do the Bucks really even deserve to be there? They've been kind of a mess over the last few weeks. And if they weeks. lose this game, they lose the, the tiebreaker yeah. against the Vikings. I mean, it's quietly a massive game in the NFC playoff picture. Uh, the Vikings are sneaky is the right word. Remember the early in the year, they're just getting torched by Aaron Rodgers, and it's like, well, Vikings, man, they should have just rebuilt. This wasn't the right approach, and they went halfway, and they're going to get screwed. The Vikings are ninth in defensive DVOA. They have a top 10 defense now. At one, no one should ever sleep on Mike Zimmer. This guy knows exactly what he's doing. He's one of the best defensive coaches in the league. He has been for a very long time. I want to say they've had a top 10 defense Every year that he's been there, I would have to look that up, but it's been at least for the last five years, and they've done it again. A lot of the younger guys on that defense have improved a ton. Cameron Dancer playing a lot better. You know, what they've gotten from Justin Jefferson is obvious. It could be a massive kind of franchise swinging draft class for that team if they can hit on all of these guys. Ezra Cleveland has shored up their offensive line in a way that they desperately needed after what they looked like over the first couple months of the season. So it's really amazing how much better they've gotten. And they're 13th on offense in DVOA. This is just a good team. And obviously them getting into a hole, we thought it might derail their season, but they 100% could make the playoffs. And if they do, they're a team that all of these NFC teams are not going to want to face. So I I totally agree. They have a ton of stake. If they win this game, I think that they have the inside track to get that last playoff spot in the NFC. My answer here, 
is Doug Peterson because everyone is going to have eyes on what's going to happen with Jalen Hurts and what that offense looks like with Jalen Hurts. And if they can turn it around with Hurts at quarterback, is that enough to save Doug Peterson's job in Philadelphia or three years after he wins a Super Bowl for a team and a franchise in a city that was starving for one, does he lose his job? I mean, that's the, the watch now. The, the Doug Peterson watch and the Doug Peterson clock are starting to tick, and I think it's a really interesting contrast because Sean Payton and Taysom Hill are on the other side. So you have a clear comparison for what a new offense, a new game plan can look like when you tailor it around a quarterback in the right way. Can the Eagles find their version of that? And what's so wild is when the Eagles went on their Super Bowl run, Doug Peterson deserved, I mean, earned so much respect from around the league because of the way that they were able to completely like retool their offense and make it work for Nick Foles on the fly. It took a couple weeks to get there. I mean, those last couple games of the regular season in 2017. Uh, um, the Raiders were, game. I'll never forget were, it. Oof, like really ugly, but then they figured it out. So we know that he has it in him to to do this or at least we think we do. I mean, the rest of his offensive staff is largely different now than it was in 2017. Was this Frank Reich magic? I'm not sure. But yeah, I mean, huge, huge stakes now for Doug Peterson. And, you know, I don't know if this is a move that he's made to try to save his job, but it does feel somewhat desperate. It's just a desperate situation all around. It's a desperate franchise. Also, if you have not Go check out the story Zach Berman wrote today on The Athletic about just the history of the Carson Wentz pick, everything that's happened since. It's fantastically well done. I highly recommend it. All right, before you get out of here, we're going to do one quick mailbag question before we get to Ted. Yeah, so I I have my mailbag. It's going to be running on Thursday morning. And instead of us doing one big question, because we've already answered, I think, a lot of big questions, I had one, one question that I thought was really fun that I thought you would want to answer. So... Here we go. This was from subscriber Ian L. What would be the funniest emergency quarterback situation? His suggestion was Gronkowski, but I want to hear yours. Funniest is hard. Gronkowski would be, I mean, that's a really good answer. I think the best one, I've said this for a while, Romo's watching these games anyway. He, I guarantee you he's still in pretty good shape. He's around. We know he has Sunday's marked off because he's got to be on the broadcast anyway. I think that Tony Romo could probably give you like 35 attempts in a game right now and be okay. I firmly believe this. So for going recently retired quarterbacks and pure comedic value, you're missing the obvious answer. Who is Jay Cutler? Oh my God. That's a really good one. That's a really <laughs> for, good one for pure like meme ability and body language and he's now like on instagram he's got like chickens and stuff but so from a pure comedy standpoint it's probably it's probably cutler well i I would say if we're sticking with uh controversial quarterbacks with uh, questionable political opinions with candidates (laughs) for arms i think that Favre could be a pretty high entertainment value i promise you right now Brett Favre could get off the couch in those Wranglers and sling the shit out of the ball right now oh, in this very 100%. moment. A hundred percent. He could. Both of those are <laughs> really would, good. He would probably tear really his Achilles, one. but, but I would also say, so we're, we had to suspend a little bit of d- disbelief, right? You know, that you could get these guys in here. If we're also talking like 
active players and for for like pure comedic entertainment value, I want to take all players who played quarterback previously off the table. So college quarterbacks, high school quarterbacks, we're not going to do Julian Edelman, Jarek McKinnon, those kind of guys. I want to see like a random defensive player that would have to get inserted. Like Give me Aaron Donald to just like take a few snaps. And I want it to be somebody who's like a ridiculous athlete, who's really smart, who understands opposing defenses, um, just to like see what that would be like. Because if we're talking comedy, it has to be like an entertainment. It can't be Kendall Hinton again, because that wasn't fair to anybody involved. But I just think there'd be a lot of fun, um, a little, a lot of fun opportunities. I think we should just have Cutler do it. The only person <laughs> who wouldn't be interested in that situation is Jay Cutler. Even if he was playing, he wouldn't be interested in it. I mean, the only the only downside of that is we kind of saw that happen with the Dolphins a couple years ago. Yeah, it ago. wasn't great. It wasn't fun or entertaining. I think that's why it's probably Favre because I know but Favre But calling would be him up on one day's notice, that'd be kind of fun. He'd put in the same amount of work as he did <laughs> when he was a starting quarterback for the Chicago Bears. All right, Lindsay. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. We will be talking to you next week. All right. See you later. And I'm thrilled now to welcome the Athletics Zone, Ted Nguyen, talking about the Bills offense for Ted's film school. Ted, I'm glad that we pushed this back a day because I wanted to really be able to dig into it. I find the Bills fascinating. I hadn't watched them in a deep way yet this year. I watched them in passing, but I hadn't kind of sat down and been like, all right, let's dig into this. And what I found... I found really interesting. So to start this off, I just want to ask you on a general level, if someone asked you, what offense do the Bills run? Like if someone that was curious about Brian Dable's candidacy as a head coach, what would your response to that be? It's like, it looks a lot like the Patriots offense in their heyday when uh, they were going a lot of shotgun with Tom Brady, but with a, a more of a spread element to it. And they're designed to beat man coverage, like everything from the personnel they've connected, uh, put together, um, all the crossing routes they do, their stack alignments, uh, the mesh concepts. Uh, And and interestingly enough, you know, with a quarterback like Josh Allen with a big arm and a a guy that's not, uh, came into the league not that accurate, they didn't get big receivers with big catching radiuses like you would expect them to. They started collecting these smaller, quicker, jitterbug-type receivers like John Brown, Cole Beasley. Um, and, you know, they, they kind of started passing short and running those kind of option routes. And then this year, they got, like, the king of the jitterbug receivers, Stefan Diggs. And that kind of <laughs> unlocked a lot in their passing game. And they just do a good job of attacking um, every level. Um, and they, they do some interesting two-back stuff out of shotgun. And when they're under sender... Uh, they're either going to run a zone run or they're going to go deep play action. Uh, but I think Brian Dabble has uh, put together some really interesting concepts and uh, put together a, a great offense that really fits the skill sets of the guys on that they have on the team. So when you look at some of those spread out numbers, they're using 10 personnel on 17% of their plays. The Cardinals lead the league at 22%. That shouldn't surprise anybody coming from the Cliff Kingsbury offense. But the Bills are at 17%. No one else is above 7 so they've run 118 plays out of 10 personnel. The Tampa Bay is next at 53. And it goes beyond using four receivers. They're using 11 personnel on 76% of their plays. They've used more than one tight end 30 times all year. This is a spread out offense. And it really is dictated, like you said, 
by that wide receiver personnel group and the skill sets of those guys. So you mentioned the option routes with Cole Beasley. Walk me through how they do some of that. You wrote about option routes this year or this week, and I've talked to Cole Beasley about this late last season, which we could talk about in a second, but how do they use him on some of those option routes and what role do they play within this offense? Uh, you know, just like the, the route I, I wrote about, and you'll see Cole Beasley run this and a lot of those uh, quicker slot receivers is a choice route. Choice route are routes where, you know, you could either put them on the front side and on a, a three receiver side and have two receivers, one clear vertical space and one clear horizontal space to isolate that guy against the receiver and just have them choose, uh, read the defender's leverage and go in and out. And, uh, you know, they have Beasley do that a lot. And you saw Beasley dominate, dominate the Niners in, in a slot um, this week. Um, and they do a ton of crossing routes and, you know, rub routes and, and that kind of deal with these smaller receivers too. And this year, Allen has done a really good job of hitting those guys in stride and let them run after the catch. Uh, so, you know, I, there was a, a point where I think they did struggle against zone de- defenses mm-hmm. and too high defenses. And Allen was just having trouble kind of anticipating those windows uh, but he started improving in that area and against the Niners. I thought, you know, he, he, he looked really good against zone and you can't just say we're going to blank, you know, we're going to run the zone defense and hope he struggles to hit these windows because now he's starting to. There was that one play. They ran a dagger concept to Gabriel Davis in the first half where Diggs ran the clear out and Davis was coming on that deep dig behind it. That was my favorite throw he had all game. You know, the stuff on the move was mm-hmm. It was flashy, but that ball to Davis right over Fred Warner's outstretched hand, that's the type of feathery touch throw that you just didn't see from him in the past. And being able to layer those throws against zone is so important. And I think that element to his game is really something different than what we saw from him even last season when he'd improved. Where else have you seen him kind of take steps forward that's allowed aspects of this offense to get unlocked? I think he, he's really improved against the blitz. And uh, part of that is the uh, the Bills and Dabble doing a really good job pre-snap of giving him information. Like, Absolutely. I think there there was a point where he did kind of struggle in this midseason. Um, and it, it's nothing revolutionary, but he did th- they did this almost every play against the Niners where you know, they'll line up a running back out wide. And, you know, if the, if a corner lines up with the running back, then you know it's zone. And then, you know, if he knows the zone, he's going to audible into a zone beater concept. And, the, you know, he, he'll get out of those crossing crossing concepts that are only good against man. And then if he knows it's man, they're going to run their crossing concepts and somebody's going to get one of their jitterbug guys and get it open on those crossing routes. Uh, so that's another thing Dabble does a good job of is just giving – pre-snap information to Allen. And I think Allen's just improved leaps and bounds throughout the season uh, pre-snap. It's really interesting how mentally there seems to be more on his plate and he's really thriving with it. Mm-hmm. I think it just his brain is something that's underrated. You think about these big, talented guys, he's kind of an oafish player. But I think he's actually kind of, he's a smart guy. I mean, I've talked to him before. I think they're leaning on that intelligence this year in a way that's kind of cool to watch. You see him doing a lot of stuff pre-snap. And one other aspect of that is putting a lot on his plate with all the RPOs that they're using. 
You know, they, yep. they've used RPOs at a fairly high rate. It's one of the top five rates in the league. He's averaged about eight yards per attempt on that. It's up near the top. There were a couple in that Niners game. There was the one quick out to Stephon Diggs uh, that they, he saw inside leverage on the corner. He's like, I'm just throwing that really quick. He had a slant RPO to Beasley at one point in that game. They've trusted him to make those decisions, and I think that is just one area of their offense that gives them answers, and Allen is the one providing them even more than the scheme is. Yeah, and I like that they're using more downfield RPOs and not just uh, Absolutely. screen RPOs. And th- those are, you know, some people would define them as package plays where uh, if they see an opening at the in, you know, in the area of a bubble screen and they'll throw it instead of a run. But they're using more downfield RPOs where he's going to read a, a linebacker. And if a linebacker chases a play, he'll throw a seam or slant. Uh, and I like those a lot better than just throwing those bubble screens repeatedly. And that's another weapon that Dabble has given um, that given Allen. It's funny because they use play action at one of the highest rates in the NFL. I think it's 34.9% of dropbacks. And when you look at a lot of the other teams that are up there, it's the teams you'd expect. It's the boot, zone, Shanahan, Kubiak type teams. The Bills are not that. So you watch some of these play action concepts and you know they run a lot of duo and power runs and stuff like that. So when you watch it tied to their play action plays, the line doesn't do much and linebackers don't really react. So some of these plays I'm yeah. watching, I'm like, they're not really accomplishing anything by using play action here. I would love to ask him what the rationale is for why they use that much play action if the, if the actual run actions aren't influencing linebackers like a lot of these other play action heavy teams that we see. Yeah, because they're, you know, like we said, they're in spread almost all the time. And it's hard to get a good play action game out of spread because your back is not turned towards the running back. You know, you're facing uh, yep. the you're facing the defense. But what, what they do, I think they're just trying to get the linebackers just to pause a little bit so they can it's get not moving up. It's them. just yeah. keeping them flat footed. That's exactly right. Because a lot of these you'll see with the boot stuff, you're actually trying to get them to move side to side. And you're creating horizontal movement as much as you're having them step forward. With the Bills, you see it on the All-22. They really just kind of stand there. There isn't much forward movement, but they're not dropping either. So that little tiny bit of hesitation is probably what it is. One other thing I thought was interesting, I'm not sure if you caught this, against the Niners a couple times, they tried to add into the running game with McKenzie coming across the formation and kind of these, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, The just the windback plays that the the Rams use. Yeah, so it's yeah. funny, like it's, there are a lot of Patriots influences, but at the same time, you can see that he's like, all right, I'm going to take one of these mm-hmm. and I'm going to take one of these. It's a fun offense to watch in that way. Yeah. And, and just to kind of go back to the uh, play action element, one, one interesting thing they do is when they do go 11 personnel, uh, they don't really use the tight end traditionally. They use them as kind of an H back, fullback so i was gonna ask you about of, this yeah so their, their their run game out of the shotgun is kind of like a two-back run game um which which i do like uh i i like that idea and it does add to that play action element a little bit um and it also lets them move the tight end in motion a lot which they use as coverage indicators uh for allen too uh but you well, know when you see kinda... him line up he's he's almost in like a sniffer role that you see in college where he's like at the line of scrimmage behind mm-hmm. the guard and tackle. Very, very few NFL teams do that. So it's kind of jarring when you see it. It's like, I can't remember the last time I saw that on an NFL field. Yeah. And, and it, it kind of, one of their best play action plays is when they have him le- fake a lead block and then have him kind of run to the side on a crossing route, too. 
Uh, so I do, I do like that. But you, we, we kind of talked about it b- before this. Their their run game is just not very good. You know, uh, I think they're 23rd in in rushing DVOA, and they just don't get a lot of push from their offensive line. And they see a ton of uh, too high defenses too, so they should mm-hmm. be able to run the ball better. But they just don't. And I, I think one thing they need to do more is involve Allen in the run game. And, and when they do involve Allen in the run game, it's just kind of like a straight-up quarterback run where they'll have him run like a quarterback draw. Uh, but I, I think if they added just one or two plays where, you know, and got got good at one or two plays where he's running an option, I think they'll add a, a whole other element to this offense. It was really funny. I was watching the, the first drive against the Niners. They ran two just straight trap plays where they were <laughs> trapping the three technique tackle. And mm-hmm. you just don't see that very often in the NFL. And so they ran it twice in the span of like five plays. I was like, holy shit. And I, I was talking to Nate about it earlier today. I guess against over fronts, that makes sense. Every once in a while, you can use mm-hmm. those plays. But it seems like they're trying to figure out ways to create some openings in the run game. Yeah. It looks better against San Francisco than it had earlier in the season, whether that's more power runs and, again, using those wineback plays, trying to just cr- manufacture space and movement horizontally rather than getting pushed down the field. And then the other aspect of it, I think having Feliciano play that right guard spot instead of winners could be – a big boon for them in the run game because I think their best five probably involves him in that role. He brings a physicality that I think they absolutely mm-hmm. could use. He played well on Sunday, so I'll be curious if adding him and having him him be in that spot gives them some juice in the running game that they've been lacking for most of the season. Yeah, and I wrote in my notes that sometimes I feel like they do too much, like they have too many run concepts, and mm-hmm. they, you know they'll try they'll try these different run concepts you don't see too often, and they kind of blow up in their face so i, I kind of think you just you know pick pick a couple of good run option plays and just get good at them uh but i mean it's not a huge criticism i think one thing that dabble does do a good job of is keeping like they're not a huge running team but he'll he's a good he does a good job of sprinkling runs in there so they don't kind of fall in that seahawks trap where defense will just kind of play way off and play three-man lines and and do all that i think he sprinkles enough runs to uh, make defense respected. So obviously, Brian Dable is going to be a huge head coach candidate by the end of this season. I think that early in the year, what he had done with Allen, the success they were having on offense, now, I mean, they're right there. They're a top 10 offense. I think Allen's fourth in dropback EPA. He's made huge strides, and that's going to be at the crux of why Brian Dable is a hot head coaching candidate. If you were trying to sell him to a team, if you were saying this is why you would feel good about hiring him, where would you start? I think he, number one, you know, the trait you always want to look for in a coach is how he's able to adapt his system to the strength of his players. And I think he does yep. a great job of that. Like we we talked about, what you know, how they build up this Bills offense. And, and two, you know, he has a, a lot of experience with a lot of different teams, you know, with the Patriots, uh, with the Chiefs. He, you know, he even had one year with Nick Saban. Uh, so he, he has a good lineage as far as, you know, mentors and tutors. And, you know, and, and now he has an explosive offense. He's a play caller. And that's, you know, what you're looking for in a head coach now, a guy that can call plays. And, you know, you don't have to worry about a hot offensive coordinator leaving for another job. If he's your head coach, he's going to be in charge of the offense. And, you know, as, as we found out through analytics, offense is, you know, if you have a consistent offense, you're going to be uh, consistently good for a long time. I like the flexibility. 
I like mm-hmm. the fact that he can be nimble. He can do different things. He can say, all right, we do this. Well, let's try to do a little bit more of that. He always seems to press the right buttons, especially this year. Their screen game is good. They've gotten a lot of production out of that. I think that he has made this offense easier for everybody. And the way that he's jived with Josh Allen and the way that they've been able to kind of develop this rapport and relationship, that's the most important thing. Are you going to have a coach at the center of this that you can pair with your quarterback and feel good about that partnership moving forward? And the job he's done with Allen and what this offense looks like structurally, like you said, giving him information, I think that's what you'd have to feel good about. He's been, in my opinion, one of the best coordinators, play callers on offense or defense in the entire NFL this year. Ted, thank you very much, buddy. It's always fun to do this. I sincerely appreciate the time. We will talk to you next week. All right. Talk to you guys next week. All right, guys. That's our show today. Thank you so much for stopping by. Appreciate Lindsay breaking out everything week 14. Thank you to Ted for talking about the Bills offense. That was really fun and informative. We'll be back on Sunday night with me and Nate breaking down week 14 games. It's an awesome slate. Please, until then, rate and review the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. I would very much appreciate it. Also, there's a fantastic promotion going on for The Athletic right now. If you buy a subscription, you get one free for the sports fan in your life. I cannot think of a better Christmas gift. Theathletic.com slash football show. You can tap into that promotion and you can take advantage of everything that The Athletic has to offer. We'll be back on Sunday. Until then, appreciate you listening. This was The Athletic Football Show.